Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all of them, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian, and I am your host. Welcome to Monday, if you're listening to this on the day it posts, although I am recording quite late, so it might actually post tomorrow, Tuesday. But it is uh, today, September 27th. 2021 that I am recording this, I will just give a shout out to myself that this is my birthday week. My birthday is the 29th of September and my dad's birthday is tomorrow. My dad's going to be 80 years old tomorrow and I am going to be 57. So I am just grateful for another year around the sun. And um, I actually wasn't going to mention that, but it just spontaneously came to me and why not? So um, here's wishing you a really, really good week. And I want to also start out by just giving a shout out to all of the new listeners of the podcast and especially to um, people who are regular listeners. I got an email from Podbean, which is the company that hosts my podcast, although you may be listening on iTunes or on your computer. Uh, that I crossed 50,000 downloads last week. And so that is a huge milestone. And this is actually episode 150. So it's kind of a nice round number. And um, it just is just so great to have this opportunity to connect with so many people. When I do talk to people, I just actually spoke to um, a teacher today in Montana, shout out to Molly. And um, she said, Oh, I listen to your podcast and, you know, I really enjoy it. And, you know, I've had other people mention things like that. So thank you, Molly, for listening. Um, and just thank you to any of you who have ever written an email to me or sent me a comment on social media. Um, I just really appreciate your time and, and definitely don't take it for granted that you spend any amount of time listening to this podcast. So today, what I wanted to do is this is kind of a blend of several different um, themes. And I'm going to start out with something that's really been on my mind lately. Um, and it has to do, it probably sounds like a topical topic, given everything that comes out in the news on a daily basis about the pandemic, but it has nothing to do with that in particular, other than um, just this idea of being familiar with data and um, being aware of how data as yoga teachers may or may not change the way we approach things. And, you know, for some of you out there who don't consider yourself quote unquote science minded or research minded, I think that this kind of topic might be a little daunting and might seem like 
it has no place in the world of uh, yoga in terms of discussion topic or you know anything along those lines. But you know, I think one of the challenges that as yoga teachers we have, and quite frankly, as an industry we have, is that so much of what is taught to teachers is really passed on and on and on and on and on. And from person to person to person, from mentor to mentee, and then from that person, they become a mentor and they pass it on to a mentee and so on. And if those learnings, those teachings aren't updated, aren't refreshed with what's the latest and greatest out there, then eventually down the line, we're passing on really incorrect information, or at least information that's not um, as current as it could be. And I think the other thing that yoga is at risk of is because you know, kind of the topic that I focus on, anatomy, the biomechanics of movement, the human movement system, because that concept or that component of understanding yoga is something that naturally lives more in the data-driven world versus some of the other things, which are somatic sensations, which I guess you could make a case being nervous system related, those are data supported as well, but certainly things around yoga philosophy and yoga theory and energies and chakras and crystals and um, the eight limbs of yoga, notwithstanding the asana limb, all of that is not really, you know, kind of coming from a data driven background. Um, now, of course, if we look at the eight limbs and we get to things like dharana and, you know, kind of the meditative states ending up in samadhi, enlightenment, we could overlay a lot of the data that's out there with respect to meditation in terms of its impact on the sympathetic nervous system in terms of down-regulating it, it's the imp meditation's impact on the parasympathetic nervous system in terms of upregulating it. So you can, interestingly enough, you know, make a case for looking at data to inform how we teach our students. You know, I don't want to get too heady here in this conversation. I guess I just want to lay the groundwork for some of the things that I'm going to go into uh, in this portion of our conversation. So the way this all falls out for me is in just sharing four particular points with you. And again, I am never coming at these conversations with you from a perspective of I'm right and you're wrong. It's really more just to, um, you know, in some ways challenge a lot of what's been out there for a long time and present a different kind of view um, and see where we end up. Uh, and some of it is really just to present a different way of looking at things. And I always have a rationale for why I, I approach things the way I do, rather than I'm just trying to be, you know, different just to, you know, kind of get clicks, so to speak. So, so know that. That's my kind of precursor statement. Um, so the first thing is under this umbrella is um, looking at data to support what we share ver versus anecdotal experiences. And by this, I mean, um, you know, as we find ourselves having conversations with our students, or if we're a teacher who teaches other teachers, really being alert to our own languaging, especially when it comes to statements we make like, 
I know in my body, this is how I experience it. Or I had really good results with back bends in terms of relieving my shoulder bursitis, or I've had a really um, bad experience with uh, cervical uh, spine um, pain because I was doing way too many um, back bends. Like these are just examples of things that teachers can say that all they are, I mean, I hate to say this friends, but this is a classic example of anecdotal experience, right? So this is something that you experience that is germane to you, happened to you, and it is very difficult, if not impossible. And I hate to say it like this because I don't want to trigger anybody, but it's somewhat irresponsible to lay that out there as a rule as a standard, as a thing that is an absolute when you teach, or even quite frankly, as a thing that's kind of something to consider. You know, what I would encourage you to do when you have these anecdotal experiences is go on the internet and Google around the issue, or better yet, go to PubMed, which is an online uh, site where they post studies and start to look at are there any studies that support your experience? Or at a minimum, don't share that information in a way that holds it out there as a rule or a principle or something to support approaching teaching in a particular way. You know, and I'm hearing myself share all this and, and I bet I'm gonna get some emails or some comments and that's okay. I think that this is one of the areas where yoga teachers really fall into this scenario of we exist in a world where data is not always talked about, where so much of what we talk about as teachers are things in the experiential world. And while that is in large part what is the beauty of the yoga practice, as teachers, right? So I'm talking to you as a teacher, not as a practitioner, as teachers, we should be highly aware of things we say that either in our cues or our conversations with students that lead students to believe certain things are a particular way when we're really just coming from our own experience um, rather than coming at it from, I've done some research and this is actually a finding that is supported by several studies that have been done, blah, 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 blah. So I think you kind of get the gist there. That's where the data part comes in. And so the second thing is kind of related, which is, would it is, this is kind of the second piece of that, this idea of presenting cues in sort of an agnostic way, rather than teaching from your own practice. And I say that because in my work, in my own program, the Blueprint Learning Program with teachers, so much of what they share with me is that they teach from their own practice. And I don't mean just physically doing the practice with the student, which is another thing we're gonna talk about today. What I mean is their cues are born out of their own physical sensations they have when they practice. 
Now, this again falls into that same category of anecdotal. When I say, in my opinion, we would be better to present cues in an agnostic way. By agnostic, I mean in, in a very um, uh, generalizable way, in, in, in a way that can be applied with a high degree of accessibility and applicability to anyone versus I'm someone who's hypermobile, I have this particular experience in backbends and my cues are gonna be shared from my experience in backbends. And I'm gonna tell you friends, this isn't even something that you could be aware you're doing and you're doing it. And the reason that you'll know you're doing it <laughs> is if your cues are coming from your own experience in your own body. This is oftentimes why teachers say to me, I need to practice with my students. That's how I know what to say, right? So that's a whole other ball of wax that we'll cover today. So this might be an opportunity for you to go back, to look at your cues, to tape your classes, to really examine what you're saying for cues and see, are these cues that are coming from my own experience or are these just standalone cues that are just, I don't want to say factual, but that are simply, right, right, like, I always teach four types of cues, action, alignment, anatomy, and somatic base cues. So do they fall into one of those categories? And can I truly say that they can stand alone separate from my own experience as a practitioner? Because remember, once you shift from being a practitioner to a teacher, and this can be two sides of the same hand as the metaphor goes, once you shift to being a teacher in class, you are not a practitioner. So your role is very different. You're there to guide. You're there to potentially inspire, but definitely there to guide. And your perspective should not be, in my opinion, your own perspective. It should be, everything should be framed from the perspective of the student. How can I reframe this? How can I restate this so that it's easier for them to understand? How can I make this the most accessible for them? How can I present these cues in a way that it resonates most with my students? How can I alter what I'm saying based upon what I'm seeing, right? So this is how we shift from being a student to being a teacher. And, you know, because we're, again, two sides of the same hand, we're making that shift all the time. Um, but I really, really encourage you, if you feel like when you stand up there and teach, you're either literally practicing with your student or your cues are coming from your own experience, please see if it's possible for you to take a step back and to do some self-examination and see if there is um, an opportunity for you to reframe your cues, to be separate from you as a practitioner and more geared towards enhancing the student's experience. Now, that's not to say that if you had a conversation with some of your students, they might say, oh my goodness, I felt the same thing in the such and such a pose. But that's just a random, you know, situation versus you, because you're not going to have those conversations with your students. And again, if you're a, a particular type of person from a, from a human movement system perspective, your experiential cues are only going to apply to people that share the same general body type. So that's another reason to really think about how can I kind of go up the chain, drill up the tree to statements that are the most accessible and applicable to most people who would come to my classes. And that 
is truly, truly one of the best ways that you can expand your impact. If you want to be a teacher who is very niche specific, great. I'm not saying that's justification to teach from your own practice, but I think that that's a scenario where absolutely, if you're teaching a specific type of person, like you're always teaching older folks, you're always teaching um, runners, you're always teaching ballet dancers, you're always teaching children, you know, obviously just thinking off the top of my head, but yes, your cues are going to be geared towards that group. Um, but I think hopefully, you know, the difference there. So Another thing is under this category of focus on data-driven teaching, uh, using research to find out more about those global statements or those cues that teachers say. So when I say, quote unquote, cues that teachers say, if I asked you, what's a really common cue that teachers say, or can you write down five cues that you feel like you've been hearing over and over and over again? You could probably come up with a list and I could come up with a list and we probably have some crossover there. And if I did it with 10, 20, 50 teachers, we probably all pick a lot of the same things. And some of, and if I further focused on it and drilled down more and said, I want you to focus on specifically anatomy-based cues that you hear a lot. Some of those things, not all, but some of those things really could, um, could improve if, we did some research and I'm even saying for myself here, and this is actually part of a topic that I'm gonna be doing a masterclass on in the very near future, where I'm gonna be presenting data to not so much debunk some of these cues, but to just shed some light on the research that is done in regards to some of the anatomical topics that are touched upon with these cues. So I'll give you one example. Don't put your foot against your knee when you do tree, put it above or below the knee. And if you ask any yoga teacher who says that, why they say it, they're gonna say either number one, that's what I was taught to say, and or number two, if you press against the knee, it will damage your knee. Now, let me ask you, do you have any research that has um, supported that statement? You know, just go on the internet. If you press on the medial aspect of your knee with your foot versus a car runs into it or a dog runs into it, right? Sometimes my dog comes up upon me from the back at full speed and crashes into the back of my knee. You know, that's a moving object. I think you probably can appreciate that a moving object smacking into the side of your knee is going to have a very different impact than your foot pressing against your knee. Right, so I'm not gonna go into the specifics of any particular scenario, but I think that's a really good example of something that teachers commonly say that may not be supported by data. And I think at this point in the podcast, even as I'm hearing myself talk, part of me is like, why am I trying to blend data into yoga? Yoga is this you know, beautiful practice, been around for thousands of years. I know it seems like a mismatch, but friends, you know, we are in 2021 here, right? We're not in, you know, 500, 5,000 years ago. That's number one. Number two, we are teaching bodies that are very different than the bodies that were taught when yoga started. Those bodies then were doing very different things than the bodies that are doing yoga now. There's, you know, no reason we should turn a blind eye to data that exists out there that can better inform us as teachers about the human movement system and better inform us in terms of the cues that we use. So that's my 
in the moment justification for even talking about this. Um, and again, it's not in any way to say, if you say, don't put your foot against your knee, that you're wrong as a teacher. It's just to suggest that there might be some of these quote unquote things that teachers say that have, sorry, just been said forever and ever. And no one ever did the research. <laughs> you know, it's like no one ever did the research. So, um, so being an anatomy minded teacher and trainer, I think of these things all the time. I see and hear these things all the time where other people might be like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense to me. Hmm, does it? Let's think about that a little bit more. So that's another point. And then the last point is, I want you to think about things that we commonly say to students that again, if you look at it, you know, in terms of, is that really something that is supported by data? Is that really something that um, makes sense? So things, the two common things that come up in my mind when I think about this is, when we say to students, oh, just take it at your own pace, or if you feel pain, back off. Now, again, I am only thinking about this from the perspective of the musculoskeletal system, right? So let's say, for instance, a student says they have pain when they do a particular series of postures. If they have pain when they do it, it could be because muscles are on the weaker side. You know, and this is a common experience when teacher, when students practice initially in this first like three month phase of yoga, they're actually using muscles that they haven't used vigorously before. And so the sensations they have in their body that they may feel are painful are really muscles that are now getting strengthened that prior to a regular yoga practice, these muscles were not used that often. Along with that, this idea of take it at your own pace, that's certainly not to suggest you want people to rush, but it implies this sort of um, just complete permission to the student to not challenge these sensations they have in the body. Now, again, I wanna state for the record here, our perimeter, our professional, domain as yoga teachers is not to treat anybody and not to make suggestions that could fall into the realm of medical advice. However, I think that over the years, over and over again, the statements like this that we make to our students really just give them this constant permission to not challenge their body. Now, I'm not saying you say to somebody, push through the pain, suck it up. But I think that the more informed you are about how the body works, the more of a solid foundation in anatomy you have, right? And I'm just actually this week off the launch of uh, off an open enrollment in my own anatomy program, the blueprint learning program. So I'm just beginning to work with, um, with the new teachers who have enrolled in the program. And, you know, just as a little sidebar, if you were thinking about enrolling and you didn't, please, please email me why, because the more I can find out about what the barriers are to people enrolling, the better I can understand the, the teachers that I want to help. So common reasons for not enrolling might have been, I don't have the time, I think I don't have the time to do what the program would entail, or I feel like I don't have the money right now. Could be that I listen to your podcast, Karen, but I'm, I'm really not interested in, in your program. Could be anything. 
just send me a DM on Instagram and let me know um, if you saw my offer and you didn't take me up on it, why, why not? And this is, believe me, not to judge, just again, in the spirit of me understanding um, teachers better and what their needs are so that I can, you know, maybe change my offer to, to meet more people's needs. But anyway, point being, um, when you have a solid understanding of anatomy, you're not, I mean, I hate to say it, but you're not going to have to lean on some of these yoga isms that people say, because you're going to feel comfortable and confident having actual real conversations with students about, okay, well, tell me more about that. Tell me what kinds of poses bring up the pain. Tell me what kinds of things you're doing in your activities of daily living that bring it up. You know, you're going to be able to have a deeper dive conversation with somebody so that you don't need to just say these, again, I hate to say it and make it sound trivial, but it, it's just kind of a, uh, just do whatever you can, you know? Now, granted, in the context of someone walks into your boot class, you might not have the time because you got to start teaching to say much more than that. But I think that it would even better serve the student to say, you know what, for right now, we're going to start class, do what you can for today, but I want you to stay after class if you have a few minutes and let's just talk a little bit more about this so I can find out more about your situation and maybe give you a more specific um, suggestion about how to approach your practice. That to me is way better than just sending them off with this kind of like, oh, just, you know, whatever feels good to you. Um, you know, but again, in order to take that step, to have the initiative, to have the confidence to take that step, you got to know anatomy, right? It can't be that you're just depending on stuff that teachers told you to say, that your mentor told you to say. You have to know that you know it and know what you know. Um, so that kind of buttons up this first part of today's episode, which has to do with, you know, again, you're probably like, where did we ever how did we end up here? But it's just, I am absolutely a science-minded person, a data-driven person. And because I've spent the past couple of days diving into some of the research, uh, it's very much on my mind. And I've been really probing my mind for some of these things that I hear a lot and using that as prompts uh, to help me query you know, the research sites to find out what is the research out there about all this. I'm actually uncovering some interesting stuff. So stay tuned for that masterclass that you can sign up for coming up soon. So the next thing I want to talk about is um, a little bit on uh, teaching skills. And what inspired me to talk about this is I had a conversation recently with a studio owner who recently hired a teacher and the studio owner was, uh, you know, just talking about how impressed they were with this new teacher and how, um, you know, how easily, just about the teaching skills, how the teacher came across. And, you know, even though this was a newer teacher, you know, this studio owner was, was impressed with, with this person's skills. And the owner went on to say that, you know, even in their own experience of teaching during the pandemic, and now that things are more open, uh, and the fact that their classes now are both taught live and in person and also streamed, how this teacher was saying, you know, um, letting go of teaching so much on the mat has been a process for me when prior to the pandemic, I really never practiced with class having done, you know, many months of online teaching, I was primarily teaching by practicing with students. And this is a really common thing. And I, and I think it's something I wanted to touch on today, especially because, you know, hopefully in the, in the 
lifespan of this pandemic, which of course we have no experience with prior to now, but now we're in the middle of it. I'm hoping that we are kind of on the downside and in that over the next six months, we'll continue to have more and more things go back to in-person. And I'm really primarily talking about in-person yoga because I don't know about where you live, but here in the Boston area, um, we are not anywhere near, uh, at least in my conversations I've had with, with a handful of studio owners. And again, here we go with anecdotal, right? So I will classify this by saying, or qualify this by saying, I've talked to at least five different people who own studios in the Boston area, and none of them have had even half of the um, attendance that they were used to having prior to the pandemic. So that's my experience, uh, not personal, but in, in talking to five, I can think off the top of my head, five individual studio owners. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, we have as teachers an opportunity here to begin to prepare ourselves if you are a teacher right now that is practicing a lot with your students because you're you're primarily teaching online i just offer you this opportunity to look at that as a potential new skill that you've learned and start to think about how are you going to scale that back and if you're resistant to scaling that back why you know in this conversation i had with this particular studio owner um, they were really excited to let go of that and go back to teaching the way they were used to, which is walking around the room, looking at people, giving cues, modifying cues based upon what they're seeing. This, in my mind, is the most skillful way to teach. And it is, you know, harkening back to what I said a few minutes ago, it is 100% the most student-centered way to teach. Practicing with your class, although you might think it's student-centered, is really... I hate to say this, but it's really self-centered, friends. <laughs> if you're practicing with your class and you continue to insist that your students need to see you, you're really robbing them of an opportunity to do something that is, for them, self-centered in a good way, meaning an opportunity for them to connect to their own experience. Every time they watch you and look at you, it basically takes them out of their experience. Now, there may be specific times where you decide to show them something or specific classes even where you decide to participate with them. And that's a very different thing and a very intentional action you're taking to create a certain level of experience or to communicate in a different way rather than through verbal cues to show them what to do. However, that's very different than just practicing with your students throughout the entire class. And in fact, I would even make the case that your students' experience is actually diluted because you are practicing with them, because your audio is not as good, your breathing patterns are disrupted, the amount of energy you have available to them is not as available, you don't have as much energy available as if, as in the situation of you're not practicing with your classes. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there as, as a topic, in, in part because I continue to um, be optimistic that you know yoga classes in person will continue to pick up. People will um, begin to get out there again, even though their schedules have completely changed. And we'll seek out opportunities to practice in person uh, yoga. And so this is a great chance for you if you've gotten yourself into a situation where you are primarily practicing 
for the most part, almost the entire class with your students to start to look at how you can scale back from that. So that's the teaching skills part. So the next part of this, the last part of this um, rather short episode, <laughs> um, but hopefully still of value, is to just do a brief anatomy lesson. And, and this is um, this is just an opportunity to go over some central concepts in anatomy that um, really speak to the, the beautiful, magical, amazing synergy between different muscle groups in the body when we move around. And, and, and most of what is happening when we look at this kind of stuff, um, uh, we look at these kinds of movements is completely, you know, it's not even within our awareness. It just is happening. When we pick up our coffee cup, we're not aware of the relationship between the biceps and the triceps. It's just our nervous system is coordinating the activity of those muscles in the act of us picking up the coffee cup and we do it and we don't ever consciously think, wow, isn't the body so amazing that the muscles are acting in a particular way so that I can pick up this coffee cup smoothly without spilling the coffee all over my body. And so I wanted to just bring to light some of the concepts that lie in the ability for human beings to move smoothly. And, you know, when you think about it, it's a very relevant um, concept to understand because when we teach yoga, we want to encourage people to move in a smooth and steady way. We don't want their movements to be jerky and awkward and unbalanced. We want to encourage the smooth movement. And when we talk about things like transitions from pose to pose, especially in dynamic fluid movements, we want them to be able to leverage the range of motion available to them in their joints. And it requires coordination between different muscle groups. Now, again, a lot of that is just happening on its own, but as yoga teachers, it is critical for us to understand how these muscles act in different roles in large part because number one, it's just part of understanding what how muscles work. And number two, it gives us the foundation from which we can make very intentional choices around the types of poses we offer people and how we put poses together in a sequence. So I'll just kind of dive now into the concepts and just for some of you, this may be rehashed, for others of you, it may be the first time you're hearing this. So I want you to think about uh, the role of a muscle is to move a limb and it acts upon a joint, right? So you can think of the muscles like the marionette strings and the joints as the movable parts and the muscles act upon the joints and they create movement of the limb. Now, when you move a limb in order for that joint to have the range of motion available to it so that the, the limb can move, some muscle is acting to do it. And another muscle has to be allowing the movement to occur. You know, the muscle that's doing it doesn't live in isolation. It's in the body with all the other muscles that are in there. So when we decide, right, skeletal muscle is voluntarily activated. So when we decide I'm going to pick up that coffee cup and it's sitting on the table and we're going to pick it up and we have to bend our elbow, we have to flex our elbow in order to do it. The it's an intentional choice. The nervous system is communicating with the biceps to activate and the biceps is going to do the work 
of overcoming the force of the coffee cup, i.e. the weight of the coffee cup, and allow you to lift it up to your face. So in this scenario, the bicep is the doing muscle, and that is otherwise known as the agonist. Now, in order for that movement to be smooth and you not to spill the coffee all over yourself, the muscle that does the opposing movement, i.e. extension of the elbow, not flexion of the elbow, needs to be giving in a little bit. So that muscle that's allowing the movement to occur is known as the antagonist. And so this coordination between the uh, agonist and the antagonist is what I'm referring to when I talk about this smooth movement that's occurring in a healthy body with, with no issues with the nervous system. Now, further, if we look at that a little bit more, we can say, well, when the muscle is doing the work, i.e. acting as the agonist, that muscle is shortening or contracting. In this example here, as I, bend, as I um, reach for that coffee cup and I pick it up and I flex my elbow joint, which is a hinge joint, my biceps concentrically contracts, those fibers are shortening, coming closer together. That muscle, you can say, is a shortening muscle. Now, as I do that, we already said, well, the, tri the opposing muscle or the triceps is allowing, it's acting antagonistically to allow the biceps to do its job. So those fibers are also uh, contracting, but they're not concentrically contracting, they're doing the opposing contraction, which for the most part is known as an eccentric contraction, otherwise referred to as an eccentric lengthening. So the smooth movement is the concentric contraction on the one side of the elbow joint, i.e. biceps, the eccentric lengthening on the other side, i.e. the triceps side, agonist, antagonist, concentric, eccentric. And you can look at this in a variety of ways. You can say, when you ask people to interlace the fingers behind the back, you're asking them to concentrically contract their rhomboids and their middle trapezius while they lengthen their pectoralis minor and major uh, in the front. So here you have the same dynamic. When you ask people to draw the knee up into the belly, either on the back or in standing, you're asking them to contract the psoas and the gluteus maximus, which is a hip extensor, eccentrically lengthens. So the psoas is the um, uh, agonist and the gluteus maximus is the antagonist. If you were to then take from standing, take your right leg and kick it back, the gluteus maximus would be the agonist, would be concentrically contracting, and the psoas now would be the antagonist, it'd be eccentrically lengthening. So keep in mind, this is the basis for how do we cre create sequencing that might have a theme of agonist antagonist? And how would we articulate, how would we say uh, how would we describe to our students the benefits of that, right? A lot of the postural, you know, kind of, you know, habits we have, hunching over the computer is the one that everybody brings up all the time, but it's true. Um, this upper crossed syndrome comes from constant hunching and comes with it, this, you know, tightness in the front and weakness in the back. So, building sequencing to correct that and bring more awareness to the students to come out of that to a more healthy neutral posture depends on your understanding of what muscles are acting in what roles in 
that scenario? And how can I create, how can I select certain postures that are going to give the person an opportunity to strengthen the muscles that are constantly lengthening and lengthen the muscles that are constantly shortening in a particular postural position. So that was just a quick review, you know, of, a, of an anatomy component here having to do with just this theme of agonist antagonist. And, you know, just appreciating that as we walk around, this is happening all the time. We're not even aware of it. Again, more evidence to just the beauty uh, of the body. So we've come to the end of this particular episode. So again, not a super long episode, but sometimes I think it's nice to have these little soundbite ones. Um, I've got some really cool interviews coming up in the future. I'm not going to tell you about them in terms of who they are, but I really think you're going to enjoy these, um, these interviews coming up within the next uh, month. And as far as something you can do going forward, if you're intrigued by, you know, by this information and you're really interested in increasing your understanding of anatomy, if you go on my website, right on the homepage, the Learn Anatomy Challenge is there. And you can go through my seven video series. It's free. It uh, comes with a download. And that will give you a quick snapshot of the major topics to learn more about when you're studying anatomy. My, um, I don't want to say my patented way, but my signature way to teach anatomy, which um, I know has been helpful for the teachers who've gone through my program, is to teach it in a step-by-step -step way. So this video series is going to give you uh, some, some look at what are the steps. Uh, and I'd say altogether, it's probably about an hour to do it. And, um, and it will give you a good overview of what these topics are that are really the fundamental building blocks of understanding anatomy. So we've come to the end. If you are still listening, I see you, not literally, of course, but I want to just acknowledge you for sticking with this episode all the way to the end. Um, again, send comments on Instagram, any thoughts about uh, the enrollment that I just closed um, last week. And any questions that you have, I would love, love to hear them. You can just DM me at barebonesyoga on Instagram. The website is barebonesyoga.com, no surprises there. And um, you can email me off the website and right there on the homepage, you'll see the chance to get that Learn Anatomy Challenge video series. Have a great week. I will talk to you soon, next Monday, as always. Thank you for listening. Namaste. Hi, everybody. Karen Fabian here. And thank you so much for listening to that episode. Before you hang up, before you disconnect and move on with your day, I just want to let you know, if you're like a lot of the yoga teachers that I talk to, you're looking for ways to break down anatomy into its key parts so that you've got an organized approach for your studying. Well, I'm going to tell you an easy way that you can get hold, get a hold of the topics that you should be studying. And they're all reviewed in my learn anatomy challenge. This is a free video series that you can access online, watch the videos, download the guide that goes with it. And you'll essentially have an outline to shape the studying that you're doing because it takes 
the broad subject of anatomy and breaks it down into just the key topics that you need to know. So in order to get to the Learn Anatomy Challenge free video series, you're going to need to go to the special URL, the special web page that holds these videos. So if you're driving right now, you're probably not going to be able to obviously write this down. If you're able to write this down, I want you to just grab a pen and a piece of paper and just write down this URL. You can also send me a direct message on Instagram and I'll send you the link directly. If you're looking for the URL, you want to just go to it yourself. Uh, I'm going to give it to you right now. It is barebonesyoga.lpages.co forward slash learn anatomy challenge forward slash. And in between the words learn anatomy challenge are hyphens. So it's learn hyphen anatomy hyphen challenge and then forward slash. So again, I'll just read you the URL, barebonesyoga.lpages.co forward slash learn hyphen anatomy hyphen challenge forward slash. So that's the webpage that holds all of these videos. There's nine of them. Uh, and you can go through those and you can take notes. You can print out the uh, guide that goes with it. That would be uh, that will be a great companion guide to have in front of you as you're going through these videos. So again, if you have any trouble getting to it, just send me a direct message on Instagram and I'm happy to send you the link directly. Don't be on your own trying to study anatomy. Use this free video series to hone in on just the topics that you need to know. Good luck.